we can, we're going to open up to the 12th chapter of the book of Matthew, as we all well know. We're going to try to uh, look at a section of scripture there this morning. Do ask that you would please be in prayer with us as we stand before you and that you would also pray for each other and that we would kind of rejoice in what God has given us today. Can we be thankful for that this morning? Can we be thankful for how he has blessed us with life and how he has guided us, how he has raised us up? You know, I mean, this is, we should not ever take for granted what God has done for us on a daily basis and that we should rejoice um, in all the gifts that he has given us for sure. I'm going to open up Matthew chapter 12. And we're going to look again at where we have been kind of going through anyway. We're going to look in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 38. And this is after, you know, we have been going through this. We've been talking about this whole chapter for many, many weeks now. I think it's astounding and hilarious and scary all at the same time that we have spent more time, I think, in Matthew, in this portion of the book of Matthew um, than really we have in, I don't know, the whole the whole rest of the book. Uh, we've spent like five or six weeks or seven weeks or eight weeks almost in just this one chapter going through this piecemeal. But then, you know, we've we've been going through this whole book in a year. Or so who knows where the Lord will lead us next. But, you know, we have been going through and talking in this chapter in particular about the Pharisees. And we have been uh, kind of seeing Jesus lay them low um, in, uh, in, in describing them and describing their... Uh, their hard-heartedness and just everything that they have been kind of being lambasted on um, by Jesus. Uh, it's, it's kind of, you know, in one sense, you almost want to feel bad for them. Um, in the other sense, you look and realize, hey, you know what? Uh, if the Lord's saying it, then uh, we should probably take some notice to it. How about it? Um, but also you see the he's trying to point out this evil, corrupt, wicked nature and how it expresses itself. And when we look at that, we should kind of marvel and also weep over this condition. OK, we should be concerned about the ways in which we speak that sounds like these Pharisees here. We need to always be taking a note of ourselves, evaluating ourselves, condemning ourselves, seeking repentance and mercy where we have failed. You know, all these things are things that we are called to do without, throughout Scripture and the things that are vitally important for us to do. Because like we've said over and over again, he is wailing on these people and you would go, Jesus, you know, let them up, let up on them a little bit. These poor guys, you know, I mean, it's been 12 chapters and you have just been hammering hard on these Pharisees. But he's making a point. And the point that he's been making through this whole chapter is there is something different about what it is to be godly. There is something different about what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ. That when we start looking too much like these Pharisees in, these, in this example or any other example you want to, when you start looking different from how Jesus looks... And you have to go, what am I really? What am I? And I mean, that's what that's been our question this whole this whole time as we've been discussing these things. We've been talking about what does it actually mean to follow Christ? What does it mean to look like Christ? If we're born again, children of God, if we are captured by his love, if we are, you know, in his family, if we have been if all these things have been done to us, if we are a new creation, then what is what do we do? How does that look different how can we be a new creature, which means we're different from the old creature, but still act and look like the old creature? That doesn't make sense. If we're a new creature, a new creation, if we have been born again, as it says in Ephesians 2, we were born again, we were saved by grace through faith, and that that was not of ourselves, it was the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, but that we are his workmanship, or as the Bible song that we sing in the car, that we are his masterpiece. He has created us new in Christ so that we should do the good things which he ordained before that we should do. I mean, that's who we are now. So then our lives should reflect that. So in this section of scripture, 
in verse 38, after he's done all these things, after he's condemned them, after he's kind of lambasted them one more time, it won't be the last. He goes, then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he, Jesus, answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And there will no sign be given it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. And the queen of the south shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, for she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Now, I start this with a question. How much more do you need to believe in Jesus? How much more do you need to believe in Jesus? Here you have the Pharisees who have just witnessed. Now, again, they were nowhere absent, okay? It's almost like they're omnipresent. Every time you see a situation with Jesus in the last 12 chapters, it's like there's a Pharisee there. You can't get away from him. Everything he does, these Pharisees are there constantly bagging on him about everything. Oh, Jesus, here you are again. You're picking corn out here in the fields. Oh, Jesus, here you are again. You're healing on the Sabbath day. And then they kind of contrive and conspire and they try to set up traps for him and say, oh, we're going to get this Jesus this time. We're going to get what we need. We're going to get the evidence on him. We're going to be able to kill him. I mean, they're constantly harassing him. It's like they're everywhere. You can't get rid of them. But secondarily in that, they have no reason to say that they have not seen signs from God. They've been with him everywhere. They've seen everything he's done. You know, as he told John, we saw back in chapter 11, you know, he told John, he said, go tell John these things again that you have seen, that the dead are raised, that lepers are cleansed, that the deaf hear, that the blind see, that the mute speak, and that the poor have the gospel preached to them. All of those things these Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes had seen. And as Christ is using that to kind of assuage John's anxiety about the situation. He's saying these are the things that have you have seen done. They testify. I am the Christ. Now here come the Pharisees again. Oh, come on. If you'll just show us a sign. You know what this answer is, right? You know what this, this statement is? Oh, if you'll just show us a sign, sure we'll believe. But you've got to give us something, Jesus. You've got to show us something. All right? This is almost like this was like Missouri or whatever. Is this the show me state? Okay? Is that what Missouri is? Isn't that what Missouri is? The show me state? All right? Show me, Jesus. Show me what you got. Show me your power. Show me your glory. Give me a sign. Show me something that'll help. Show me something that I can grab hold of and say, oh, okay, yeah, I guess you are then. And what Jesus' answer is, which, you know, in, in true fashion, and I heard it said just recently this past week, you know, sometimes Jesus answers the questions very to the point. This is one of those cases. Sometimes he'll answer the questions back with another question that actually is the better question, okay? So, you know, it, it, it's, it's one of those things that Jesus is kind of showing, you know, like you thought you had the best question. I've actually got the real question for you. You answer this question and you'll have the real answer, okay? It reminds me very much of like, you know, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You know, what's the answer to everything in the universe? 42. And they say, well, that's not a real answer. He said, yeah, well, you didn't ask the right question. Well, of course we did. No, you need the question, okay? So sometimes Jesus answers back with the question, all right, you know, you have people come up to Jesus and say, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he'll go, hey, what does the law say? Well, that's, is that really the answer? Is that how you get eternal life? Is because, no. So sometimes he answers in a way that brings out what really is the heart of the issue here. So here these guys come up to him and they say, hey, we want to see a sign from you. That was not uncommon. The Jews were commanded in some places to do that. That if you go back into Isaiah or if you go back into Exodus or Deuteronomy, that 
in those areas, God will actually tell Israel, ask of me a sign and I will show you. Okay. You know, and that's what, I mean, that was how he operated back then. Right. And those old Testament examples, I mean, he's like, you want to see a sign? Boom. I'll give you a sign, brother. Here's your sign. All right. Not blue collar comedy tour, like the real. All right. God had that way before whatever that dude did. You know, I mean, this is, this, that's God's answer. I'll show you a sign. You want to see a sign? Boom. I'm going to let you Moses walk up to Pharaoh. And this is how you're going to teach Pharaoh and the people of Israel. You're going to take Aaron's rod and throw it down on the ground. It's going to turn into a snake. There's your sign. Okay. Or you know what? You can take your hand and stick it in your stick it in your coat and bring it out. It'll be leprous, and then you can take it and stick it back in, and it'll be clean again. There's a sign. Here's your sign that this is God's power. Now you know I kind of I kind of laugh because you know they call that. I, I, I didn't know this just till recently, but they actually call when you do a certain test for the shoulder to test your rotator cuff. If you put your arm in the in the shirt, that's called the Napoleon sign. Okay. I never knew that, and when I heard that, I laughed out loud about it. I was like, that's awesome. Um, so you have the Napoleon sign way before Napoleon was even a thought in his great-great-great-great-grandfather's eyes, okay? So here, though, you have this, this, this sign mentality. God was merciful, and God was long-suffering, and God was gracious enough to say, yeah, I will give you a sign, Israel. But this time he says, an evil an adulterous generation seeks after a sign. You know, that word adulterous there that he uses, that's using, used often throughout the scripture when it's describing God's people in relationship with God. You know, the Old Testament describes it as a wedding ceremony, describes it as a husband-wife relationship, that the, the, the relationship between God and Israel was a marriage, okay? That same kind of imagery is used with Christ and the church. That's why he says in Ephesians, you are husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it because Christ loves his bride so much he died for her. And so he commands the the husbands of all future, you know, you are to love your wives just like Christ loved the church, which means you got to cut yourself out and put yourself on the altar for your wife. How's that? It's a bride husband relationship. Well, in the same way, in the same fashion, when the wife, that would be us in this case, when the wife goes out and tries to replace her husband with some other man-made contrivance to find satisfaction, it's called adultery. In the Old Testament, when Israel would go off, as they say, using a big old ancient word or an old, uh, uh, you could say, old uh, Shakespearean word, but when they go off a whoring after other gods, okay? Everybody's like, oh, I'm so glad you said that this morning. Word from the Lord, praise God. When they go off a whoring after other gods, when they go prostituting themselves, how's that for 21st century? Prostituting themselves out to other gods. That's how God described it. He didn't say this was a lifestyle choice. He didn't say this was your free and open will. Enjoy it how you want to. He said, no, you are committing adultery against me. He didn't say, hey, I've saved you by grace. Don't worry about it. He said, no, you are cheating on me. And I take offense to that. So when he describes them as being adulterous here, he's saying you seeking after a sign is you are prostituting yourself out for these physical, tangible things. When I have caused you, when I have called you to believe in me by faith. So he says, an evil and adulterous uh, generation seeks after a sign. And it's not to like throw shade on us and make us worry like, oh goodness, you know, what have we done? How have we done this? How we've... But it is something to think about. If we are constantly seeking after, quote unquote, signs from the Lord, if we can't just trust him, if we can't just trust him to lead us, trust him to guide us, trust him to open the doors where he opens doors and to go where he calls us to go. If we can't trust him to do that, if we are constantly saying, oh, Lord, I just can't take that next step unless I lay out a fleece or lay out whatever. You know, I, I kind of jokingly said we don't have fleeces anymore. But then again, you know, we do have Columbia jackets, right? Those are fleece fleece jackets. Everybody with me on that? So maybe you go lay your Columbia jacket. I wouldn't recommend this, especially as expensive as they are. Get the cheap Walmart knockoff brand. Okay, not Columbia, but like co 
Umbia or whatever you know Walmart's going to do. Um, get a get a fleece. I'm going to lay it out there. See if God rains on it or dews on it or whatever. Or maybe He doesn't. I need some of those signs, Lord, for you to tell me what I'm supposed to do. And God's going. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. I've given you 66 books filled with what you're supposed to do. I've given you 66 books. I have sent my son, who is the very word of God, to tell you this is how life is supposed to be lived. This is how you are supposed to walk. This is what my will is for you. Go and do it. Quit sitting back on the sidelines and prostituting yourself out for all that the world would say is what you're supposed to do. And say, oh, but that's where I feel satisfaction and that's where I feel joy and that's what makes me happy. You're prostituting yourself out for a cheap joy that's going to die and burn. He said, instead, come over here by faith and believe and trust. And in that faith, you will find the freedom to where you don't need a sign. You say, oh, but that's so hard for me because I just don't know what I'm supposed to do. Well, in all honesty, you do know what you're supposed to do. We all do. What does the Bible command us to do? Pray. Seek God's face. Listen to the Lord. Because a lot of times what we're doing is we're prostituting ourselves out to impatience. And our society, which tells us that everything, including your relationship with God, should be like your relationship with the drive-thru at McDonald's. That our relationship should be so much that I can just walk up to the voice box of God and say, I want a number three and drive around in five minutes and better have it there and better have exact change or else... I'm going to be mad about this. I'm going to blow up Facebook and Instagram with you about how awful it is. All right. God says, instead, you trust in me. And when you go prostituting yourselves out to try and get these signs that what you're doing is you're saying you don't really trust me. You don't really trust me. You don't really trust that I'm in control. You don't really trust in my sovereignty. You don't really trust in my power. You don't really trust that I actually know what I'm doing and I know how to handle this situation. I mean, this is what we've been seeing on Wednesday nights when we've been going through Exodus, is it not? Walk out across the desert. Lord, look, you didn't know what you were doing. You brought us out here and look, there's no water. Don't you know we need water? Yeah, I do. And I'm really reconsidering what I did. I do know you need water. I'm thinking about just letting you die because I'm tired of listening to it. And what do we talk about? Like in that beautiful picture when they cross the Red Sea and they go into the wilderness, they start murmuring about the water and the bitterness there at that water at the place called Merah. God provides a way for them after they have whined and complained the whole time. He provides a way for them to get water that was sweet and perfectly fine to drink. But do we remember not just like, we're going to say like 12 steps later, they walk forward into a place where there was an oasis with 12 wells that were already there, well prepared, had water all I mean, wells, not river that they were getting it from, wells were there. It was already a place that was built and provided water freely. And it wasn't just like one source of bitter water, it was 12 wells of overflowing water. That if you just trust God, if you just trust God, he knows where he's leading you. He knows where he's walking there with you. He's provided everything. He's taking care of it. So let's not sell ourselves out to cheap, quick results instead of relying on the eternal one. So in this case, the Pharisees have betrayed God. They are adulterating themselves with legalism, with their own self-righteousness. Okay, we've seen this displayed throughout. They had found a new husband. You know, they were, they were wedded to the law. They were wedded to, and, and the law is a good thing, but they were wedded to it in a self-righteous way. I don't need God anymore, Okay. I don't need to trust in his grace. I don't need to rely on his justification. I justify myself. I get myself cleaned up. I work myself. I do the law. I keep it to every little point and counterpoint. I do everything perfectly. 
So I don't need God. I got this figured out. Heaven's going to be my home because I've got the work done. You see how they've done that? You see how they have replaced God? They have adulterated themselves out. Plus, as Pharisees, they like the fame. They like the power. I mean, come on with it. I mean, we are, we are here. We are in charge. We've got control. We're kicking jokers out of, the, out of the synagogues if we don't like what they say. I mean, they had sold themselves out to the natural things. And kind of what's more to the point, and what we've talked about before, Jesus has already given them signs. They're saying, Lord, we would see signs. And Jesus is going, did you not see me raise the dude from the dead? Is that not a sign? Have you seen anybody else do that? None of your people can do that. Go out and try. Go raise someone up from the dead. And then I'll bow down to him and I'll say, okay, yeah, God must be with him too. But quit being blind by your hard-heartedness and not recognizing you've already seen plenty. You've already seen plenty. Again, this goes back to kind of how the Israelites were in the Old Testament. Are you picking up on a theme here that they really aren't changing all that much? It's been like 3,000 years of Jewish history and we're still seeing the same amount of unbelief. Because there's still a wicked heart there in both places. And here when he's talking about this, he's going, look, you've already seen the Old Testament. You, did I not send ten plagues? Did I not deliver you out of 400 years of bondage? Did I not walk you through a Red Sea? Did I not do all these things? Why are you sitting back now going, God somehow is powerless? How's God going to solve these issues? Fast forward to when they're getting ready to cross the Jordan. Oh, Lord, how in the world are we going to be able to conquer this land? Because there's giants over there. There's things that we can't conquer. And God's going, amen, like the Red Sea. You know, where's my amen on that one? Like the Red Sea, like the bitter water, like what else? Like manna from heaven. What else can I show you to show? Of course you can't do it. Of course it's not your power. I didn't tell you you were going to go over to Israel and you were going to inhabit that land of Canaan and that you were going to have to, by your might and power, solve these big world issues. I told you that if you trust in me, I'm going to lead you to the promised land. So it just cracks me up that now you're, you're looking at it and they're going, oh, but how are we going to do these things? How are we going to solve these problems? How are we going to make all this work, Lord? And God's going the same way you have previously. By nothing. You've done nothing. Let's just be honest. You have contributed nothing to this scheme other than your whining and complaining. So instead, just close your mouth and trust in me. Don't seek after a sign. You don't need a sign. I've already given you plenty of signs. And in our own lives, we can go back and say, oh, but if I just had this sign to show me what I needed to do next, God's going, I've already given you plenty of signs. I've already shown you that I've taken care of you. Did I not save you when you were my enemy? Did I not born you again out of your wickedness? Did I not make you who you are today? Did you do that? Is it because you went to the right spa and got the right facial that you look so good today? No. It's because I worked in you. Your joy that you have today can only be claimed on the cross of Jesus Christ. That you are who you are today because of me. Not because of you. Not because of your 10-step program or whatever you did. It's not that. It's that I worked in you. Here's your sign. Have I not shown you that I am faithful? Have I not shown you that I am going to take care of you? If I would save you when you were my enemy, when you were my son or my daughter, don't you think I'm going to take care of you? He told this before when he talked to the Israelites and he was or back in Matthews 5, 6 and 7 when he says, you know, don't I feed the birds? Aren't you better and more valuable than birds? Doesn't even your natural father give you food when you ask? He doesn't give you a stone or a serpent and say, hey, eat up, enjoy. No, even your natural, ungodly, wicked father knows to provide good gifts to their sons. Don't you think me being your heavenly father is going to do that with you? So he says, I've already given you all the signs that you need. And even in abundance with that or in uh, coordination with that, if you were to look, you know, we have seen where even the 
let's say, the natural person or the, uh, the lay person can, can see that Christ is God, okay? Just in this chapter, we've already talked about how when God, when Jesus did these miracles that the, the crowd said, is this not the son of David? They were proclaiming it. Is it? I mean, Messiah. It's got to be. How can it not be? Look at him cast out the devils. It has to be the Messiah. And it was the hard-hearted Pharisees that turned around and said, no, 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 this must be the work of Satan because that just makes sense. But even beyond that, if you look over like in John chapter 9, and you know where we're going. John chapter 9, this is where the man who was blind from his birth was healed. You know, and they asked the question, who was, you know, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was being blind birth? And Christ says, nobody, it was all for the glory of God, and so the power of God could be shown. Boom, he heals him, he goes down to the pool of Siloam, he washes his eyes, and now he can see, okay? And then he gets called before all these people. The poor fellow can't even enjoy his sight, because all he gets to do is get drugged by everybody, everywhere going, well, is this the dude? Is this Johnny? You know, is, John, is this Johnny who was blind from his, oh yeah, it looks like Johnny, but it couldn't be, because look, he can see, and I mean, they start ragging him and everything. He finally gets drugged before the Pharisees and the, actually the Sanhedrin, which is the, the governing body of the temple. And he dry, gets drugged before them and they're like, oh, who is, how did you, are, are you, re- you're lying. You weren't really blind that whole time. He's like, no, dude, yeah, for 30 something years I've been blind. Ask anybody. And then they drag his parents before him. Hey, is this your son? Yeah, it's him. I don't know because bl- I, I had a blind son. I don't know how this one's seeing, but that looks like Johnny to me. Pharisees bring him back in and go, okay, okay, okay. So how did you get healed? I don't know. All I know is I met this dude named Jesus. He told me to go wash my eyes in the pool of Siloam, and here you go, I can see. Well, that's not, that can't be right because this man, Jesus, he heals on the Sabbath day. He does all these things that are contrary to the law. He cannot be the Messiah. He could not be from God. It's impossible. He doesn't act like someone from God. He doesn't act like us and therefore he couldn't be from god the blind man just kind of laughed and answered them and said why herein is a marvelous thing that ye know not from whence he is and yet he hath opened my eyes now we know that god heareth not sinners but if any man be a worshiper of god and does his will he hears him Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? That's not a question. That is a statement. It's just, you know, not how we normally read things. So it would really be like this. It has never been heard of since the beginning of the world that anyone has opened the eyes of one who was born blind. And so he says, if this man were not of God, he could do nothing. If this man was not of God, he could do nothing. So when he's sitting here talking to him and saying, guys, you're the Sanhedrin. You are like the, this is the theological, you know, like you guys are, are the top dogs. You should be able to recognize this. How can you not recognize this? If I, being a simple man, can recognize, hey, guys, I don't really know all of what you think of him, but I know one thing, he did this. And have you ever heard it being done since the beginning of the world? No, I didn't think so. So if he did this, then it's a miracle. (laughs) If it's a miracle, he must be of God. That's just pretty simple math right there. And of course, then they kick him out and say, get out of here. You know, you don't know what you're talking about. Typical pharisaical, self-righteous attitude. Present me with the truth, and then I'll look back at you and say, oh, I don't want to hear it because you're too stupid to know what your truth really is. Oh, I'm, so, I'm so smart. I'm so much more religiously inclined than you are, and I know what to do. You, you can't be right. Uh, sometimes just that simple little word, I think Jesus says it best, out of the mouth of babes. Sometimes it's out of the mouth of babes that true wisdom is expressed. So let's carry on. The sign of the prophet Jonah. What, so what was this sign of Jonah? And I know because a lot of times we immediately love to just jump into that three days and three nights thing. And we're like, oh, yeah, see, this is the tr- this is the resurrection and the death and the burial and all this stuff. And we love to talk about that. And we love to argue about 24-hour days and Jewish timekeeping and all this stuff. But I want you to really realize something real quick. Do not get fixated on the three days and the three nights. It's not the point of this sign. Okay? It's not the point of this sign. He is not telling them, 
I'm going to prove to you I'm the Messiah because I can stay in a tomb for three days. Okay? The timekeeping of this is not the essential point of the sign. Now, there are things and there's Jewish traditions about spirits hovering and all this stuff about why three days was the deal and all this. And okay, I get all that. All right. But when he's telling them here that the sign you're going to receive is the sign of the prophet Jonah, it had nothing to do with the fact that Jonah spent three time capsules or three time periods or whatever it may be. The time period was not the issue. When you read the story of Jonah, What's the main theme of the story of Jonah? Is it that somehow he spent three days somewhere? No. The whole point of the story of Jonah is explained in his disobedience, in his punishment by God, in his subsequent repentance, and then his going and preaching to Nineveh. And that's why Jesus doesn't just stop and say, hey, I'm going to camp out three days somewhere. There's your sign. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm going to give you the sign of the prophet Jonas. And in that sign also, you're going to see that the, the children of Nineveh are going to rise up in judgment against this generation. Well, who was it that Jonah preached to? Nineveh, right? That's why he's tying that in. And then he goes, also, I'm going to throw in the queen of Sheba here. That's the queen of the south. Because she came all this way to hear Solomon preaching. I'm going to throw that in there too. She's going to judge y'all too. So then why would he just throw that in there? When, if all he was really trying to say was that he was going to spend three days in the, t- in the tomb. Why would that have any correlation? Why would that matter at all? Okay? So there's more to that. It's not just about three 24-hour days or Jewish nights and mornings or whatever it may be. That's not his focus in this. He's teaching them a judgment or two or three or four out of the sign of the prophet Jonah. So let's look at that real quick. Because we know that Christ was alluding kind of secondarily to his death, burial, and resurrection in this sign. But to this group, who is he trying to nail home? Okay? What is he trying to nail home? There are three primary principles that I think we gain out of Jonah's whale experience. Okay? The first one is that God is sovereign. Okay? And obedience to God's commands are required, expected, and absolute, okay? That God is sovereign and that obedience to God's commands are required, expected, and absolute. If you don't think that's true, go ask Jonah and let him tell you. If you don't think that, number one, God is sovereign, go ask Jonah and let him tell you what he thinks about the sovereignty of God. Let him tell you how, hey, you know, I tried to not do what God told me to do. And God swept up the storm. He caused the whole world to revolt against my ship. I get thrown overboard by a bunch of Gentiles who had no clue about who Jehovah was. I was thrust into a whale that swallowed me. And somehow I survived for three days and three nights in this whale's belly. Until God brought me to my senses okay and then in his sovereignty and his mercy he threw me up on the shore and guess what i was more than ready to then pursue the will of god okay so you see though that jonah's experience testifies that god is sovereign i am in control over everything i can make the world turn upside down i can spin up seas and churn up storms in the ocean i can bring you exactly where i want you to go and there is no one as nebuchadnezzar would say there is no one there is no one that is greater than god There is no one who can understand God. There is no one who can stay his hand or say to him, what do you do? God does what he sees fit to do. God has the power to do it. And there's no one that can tell God, I think you did that wrong. Okay. Go read Job and ask Job his opinion on the subject. God, I think you missed the mark with me. Oh, do you now? Where were you, Job, when I, by myself, without the all-knowing power of Job, laid the foundations of the world? 
Where were you when I spoke and light came into existence where there was none ever before? Where were you when I fashioned the molecules of every human being that ever would be? Where were you, Job? You weren't there. You know why? Because you ain't God. And I am. And I am sovereign, which simply means that I rule in the highest and there is nobody above me. And I'm also sovereign in that I have power beyond any comprehensible being entity. I am God. I alone. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. He is God alone. So he is sovereign and obedience to his commands are required, expected, and absolute. Jonah didn't. It wasn't like God kicked back and said, oh, that's okay, Jonah. I know it's a tough deal, dude. I mean, I was asking you to go to Nineveh. They're a hard crowd to preach to. I mean, you know, I get it, man. I get it. That's okay. Don't worry. I'll find somebody else. I'll let you go on this one. You can slide. Hey, go on back to go on back and, and to Tarshish and just go hang out. Don't worry about it. Put your feet up. You've had a rough day. Swallow by that well and all. No, he didn't. He said, no, Jonah, I, I told you to go do this. Jonah, I expect you to do what I told you to do. And hey, Jonah, you didn't do what I told you to do. So now there's going to be some consequences because of that. So what's funny is that even pagan sailors that are on the ship with him could recognize the sovereignty of God. Even these pagan sailors at this point are going, the Lord is God and there is none other beside him. Where's the man that's offended him? You get off my boat. I know who this God is. I'm aware of his power. All right. So we're going to have to get this square because I'm not going under for you, bruh. All right. So they even they could recognize this. Unfortunately, Jonah's heart was a little more stubborn, you know. Second judgment that you can find from this is that God will punish and correct his children in their wayward actions. God will punish and correct his wayward children in, I mean, his children in their wayward actions. So when we go astray, God doesn't just say, hey, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Jesus died for you. Grace is by you are saved. We sing amazing grace. Don't worry about it. Hebrews chapter 5, 5 through 11. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as children. Now this is coming from Proverbs chapter 3, where Solomon is telling his son that. But in, in verse 5, I mean in verse, yeah, verse 5 of chapter 12 of Hebrews, he says... And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh to you as unto children, my son. Or, I'm sorry, my son. That's the beginning of it. Despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receiveth. If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chastens not? But if you be without chastisement... Whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. That means illegitimate children. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness." Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. Amen. But grievous, nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them which are exercised thereby. Now, the chastening word there, the Greek word, means to as to train up a child, to educate, to discipline, to punish, to instruct, to teach. It is all one giant word. So when God is teaching his children by chastisement, by punishment, by discipline, he's saying he's doing it for a purpose. He's doing it that we may enter into his holiness. He's doing it so that we may yield the peaceable root fruits of righteousness. He doesn't do it because he gets kicks off of it. He does it because he gets results off of it. 
And that's really what we are to be doing. When we as natural fathers chasing our children, I don't do it because it's like, oh yeah, I just love beating kids. I just love spanking children. Man, nothing makes me happier than when I get to whip out the belt and go to town. Nothing gives me more joy. We don't do it for that. Why do we correct? Because we want to see a change in behavior. Now, how many of us would say that you get 100% results every time? Now, I mean, I know I am an example to that, okay? I know that I always, when corrected in the slightest, gave 100% obedience after that. But for everybody else out there, I know that's not the fact. When God chastens, he gets results, okay? He chastens to bring about the peaceable fruits of righteousness. He chastens to bring us into his holiness. So God does chasten his wayward children, and it brings about results. Look at Jonah. I think it would be a good example there, wouldn't it? After three days, Jonah finally said, you know what? I think I'll do what God told me to do. I think God might be in control. I think God might be right about this. I think Nineveh does need to hear the gospel, and I am ready and willing to preach it. So the third judgment is that God will, on his timing, bring you out again. And that's what he did with Jonah. After sufficient time, he brought him out again in repentance and renewed obedience, but also in a kind of newness of life. Because if you go back and read Jonah's account, Jonah's like, I was saved from hell. He's like, I was saved from death. I was crushed in the depths of Sheol. You know, I mean, all this stuff, he uses this phrase. I mean, Jonah did not look at it like, oh, this was just a nice little trip down to the coast. Okay. He didn't look at it as a nice little retreat, a getaway to where he had some spiritual engagement. Jonah was like, I was dead. But God brought me again. He resurrected me. Now, when you look there in chapter 12, again, of Hebrews, it, it for our prophet that we might be partakers of his holiness, entering into a newness of life. In Psalm 37, he will make this statement, and this is something to carry with us too, to, to go along with this, because you would think, oh, well, there's just this, there's just God just left us there, okay? You know, go swallow him up. You got punished for what you did wrong. Goodbye, see you later. God's going to find someone else. But that's not Jonah's story, is it? God is punishing, correcting, and chastisement to bring about something new. To bring about discipline that then translates into a newness of life. Repentance, obedience, correction. He doesn't just want to punish you for your errors. He wants to see your errors punished and your life changed. He wants to see you sanctified. He wants to see you turned. He wants to see you walking closer in his holiness. In verse 25 and 26 of Psalm 37, it does not directly tie to chastisement, but it is an exceptional verse to constantly remember, especially when you feel like you're in the belly of the whale. I have been young and now am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. He is ever merciful and lendeth, and his seed is blessed. What we take from that is that we remember that God is always with us, that God never forsakes us. And this is from the psalmist who is saying, I have lived a long life, and you know what I have never seen? I have never seen his people forsaken. You say, well, man... They had a lot of problems. Yeah, they did. God still never forsook them. Yeah, they had a lot of chastisement. Yeah, God still was ever merciful. And he's that same way with us, bringing us out again after a sufficient time to bring out the peaceable, roots of, um, peaceable fruits of righteousness. So what does that tie in with Christ? Well, in a very similar fashion, as Christ is referencing his death, burial, and resurrection on kind of a grand and eternal scale or grand and eternal ex, uh, application of this kind of microcosm that is Jonah's story, you know, we do see some tie-ins there. Now, there's some aspects that differ. 
Okay, but there are some tie-ins to those three things of God's sovereignty and his uh, demand for obedience, his judgment, his punishment, his corrective discipline, and ultimately the newness of life that that brings. When you look at Jonah's story, you see one of disobedience to the sovereignty of God. And this is where it kind of differs. But Christ, obviously, his story was one of absolute obedience to the sovereignty of God. Okay, but still the sovereignty of God was in all that. There was still an application of God's sovereign power in all that. In fact, even Christ would say, I came not to do my will, but thy will. I came not to do the will of mine or my own will, but the will of him that sent me. There's a obedience to God's sovereignty in that. Say, so even from Jesus, who was the son of God. Yes, he says, I lay down my life. I will submit to your will. Secondly, Jonah was punished for his rebellion, which ultimately resulted in his entrapment in the whale's belly. And again, though Christ never sinned, Christ was never disobedient. Christ never entered into that kind of need for chastisement and judgment because of something that Christ did personally. We can put it that way. But we do remember that Christ gave himself up for our punishment, right? Christ was punished of God for the rebellion that was originally aimed at us. The punishment that was originally aimed at us for our rebellion, Christ took on himself. So when we talk about Christ being in the tomb, like Jonah was in the whale's belly, you know, he didn't go there just for like a siesta, okay? We know he didn't go there because it was like, hey, you know what? It's been a hard day, been flogged, been crucified, need to take a break, right? That's not why he went there. He was there because of us. He was in that place of punishment because of us. He was there because of our disobedience. Flip with me to Psalms 103. Probably a a section of scripture that you're all very familiar with. You've heard it a thousand times, but read it again in context of what we're talking about here. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, chastise, discipline, correct. Neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, thank Lord nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. That's the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus Christ. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them. That fear him. That's why Christ is in that tomb. That's why he's in that proverbial well's belly. Punished for our iniquities. Isaiah 53 and 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Where we should have been, he was. Where we should have gone, he went. And what we should have suffered, he died under. And went into the tomb. And as it says that if we stopped there, we would be of all men most miserable, right? But aren't we thankful that Jonah got out of the whale's belly and Jesus got out of the tomb, huh? So when you go to the next part of this, ultimately Jonah was changed and delivered and he came out of the tomb that was that whale. And so in the same way Christ was delivered out of the tomb, he was changed into a glorified, glorified body. He was changed into a triumphant savior. He was delivered out of that persecution, that death. 
and that Christ's resurrection was the final piece of this sign to show God's ultimate sovereignty and power. Not even death can hold me. Not even death can stop me. Satan, you thought you had won, but here comes the crushing blow to your skull, buddy. I am out of the tomb. That's why we celebrate a Sunday morning service, because when that sun arose, Jesus was out. Okay. He said, I am out of here. It is a morning service to celebrate. That's M O R N I N G, not with a U. It's a morning service because it's to celebrate the resurrected Savior. That just as the sun comes up in the morning, the sun came out in the morning. Triumph in that to show his ultimate sovereignty and power. To show God's forgiveness and the newness of life that is found in Christ's sacrifice. As it is said in other places, he was the firstborn among many brethren. And that is a grouping of born-again children of God who by the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ are born out of death into life, are quickened, as it's said there in Ephesians. We are made new in Christ. Amen? And that's all through Romans. You will find that priest, Romans 4, Romans 6. We don't have time to go through it all today. Romans 8. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. That's not only from the death and sins to life in Christ, but also in that resurrection day. Hallelujah. That Christ's newness of life is translated to us. So that's how just primarily that sign is expressed. Do we see there's a little more to it? Do we see it has a little more meaning for these people? As he's sitting here telling these Jews, some of which are out there going, this is the Messiah. The other ones he's just addressed and said, hey guys, I hate to break it to you, but your heart is wicked. You are a generation of vipers. How can you escape the damnation of hell? Okay, you have both paradigms going on here. And Jesus tells them, this is the sign you are going to see. That I am going to die for a people. I'm going to be raised again for their justification. You're going to see this sign play itself out in my death, burial, and resurrection. But lastly, it was a sign because in the preaching, in what he describes there with Nineveh and with Jonah, it is a sign of the preaching of righteousness, belief, and repentance. He's still hitting at these Pharisees. You have been told what to do. You have seen the signs. I don't need to give you another sign. You should know what to do. John way back has already been preaching at you guys saying, who hath commanded you to come out here and escape the damnation that is to come? Who told you to do this, you generation of vipers? I mean, John's all, John hit them before Jesus did. But he gives them another hit. He says, this is going to be another testimony to you or against you. That the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here today. Amen? Amen. Now, if you think as good as Jonah was, I mean, he got himself a book in the Bible, one of the smallest ones, but he did it. All right. boy, Jonah. Way to go. You got in there out of the 66 books. You are one of them. Way to go. But you know what I find really funny in that story? Because there's two judgments here. The other one is about the queen of the south that came up to hear the word of God, to hear the Solomon's wisdom. And the two judgments there, really quickly, he's res- the two judgments you see in this is the responding to the word of God when you hear it preached, and then also desiring to seek the word of God throughout the world. You have Nineveh responding to the word of God. You have the queen of the south seeking the word of God when she's just heard rumors of it. Said, here you are hearing the word of God and you're not repenting. Here you are knowing that the word of God is here, that wisdom is here, a greater than Solomon is here, and you are not seeking it out. So I think of all the stories with Jonah, what cracks me up is that I think Jonah was the most surprised one in all of that story at the repentance of Nineveh. Okay? Jonah was surprised over anybody. I think even the Ninevites weren't even as surprised as Jonah was. 
Jonah was sitting up there going, what happened? Where's my fire and brimstone? Where's my Sodom and Gomorrah? Where's my self-righteous, wicked heart? Right there, Jonah. There it is. Jonah was more concerned about that stupid gourd over his head than he was about thousands of people coming to repentance in the name of God. What does that say about your heart, brother? And that's, what, that's why when we've talked about Jonah's story before. That's why that story is so unique. It has nothing to do with Israel in the sense of repent Israel and be saved like all the other prophets do. This one was actually talking about their hard-heartedness. It was talking about how they had an attitude towards Gentiles that they deserved to be burned up while they're worshiping Baal in the temple. He said, guys, y'all are off the mark. And I'm going to give repentance. Even these Ninevites repent at my preaching. I've sent you thousands of prophets. And you continue to cheat on me. So as he's sitting here talking to these Pharisees, he's going, guys, I've done the signs. And I am done with you. Even Nineveh repented at the preaching of God. That wicked, worthless area that killed thousands even they repented here you are as a pharisee claiming that you are the most religiously elite status person in israel that you keep that law so perfectly and you don't even repent at the preaching of the word of god and secondarily that the second the the woman of the south the queen of the south came up to hear the word of god she just heard it from solomon now solomon was a wise dude in fact he was the wisest of all men at that time but jesus says um guys there's a greater one here than solomon i'm wisdom incarnate i'm the one that david t- I mean, that solomon talks about in the proverbs all right, I am the word that became flesh that spoke the very earth into existence. And I'm the very word that keeps it, that by its power is holding your molecules together. If I'm here speaking, you should be seeking. But you're not. If I'm here speaking, you should be hearing and following and obeying because your Lord has commanded it is so. But you're not. I mean, he even he even will tell them in another place in Matthew eight, as we have talked about, he said, there will be many that come from the east and the west that will sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into the outer darkness. He says, you think you're in because you are a Pharisee. I have news for you, brother. So as we close with this, what should it take for us to believe in God? What's holding us back? What questions or stumblings do we have that are holding us from giving our lives completely to him, to submitting to him in repentance, to submitting to him in baptism, submitting to him in obedience? Are we cheating on God? Have we found another mistress in this world? Whether that be personal gain or fame or wealth or idolatry? What's taking the place of our husband and our king, Jesus Christ? And secondly, what is the appropriate response to God's word? The appropriate response to God's word is repentance and obedience. It's not, oh, that's just some good sounding stuff. Let me hear it again. No, it's repentance and obedience. That's the proper response. And we have to remember that God is sovereign and that his obedience is expected. And that starts with belief and that starts with confession and that starts with repentance and that starts with baptism. And then it continues on in faithfulness and obedience in giving our lives forever for our King and our Lord Jesus Christ who died on that cross who was buried in that tomb for our iniquities and was raised again for our justification so that we may be called the people of God. May God bless us to work on that.